Hey kids, I'd like to introduce you to a new podcast you're going to love. On behalf of myself, Morgan Rector, of one of the most horrific true crime podcasts, Human Monsters, I'd like to ask you this question. Do you like to travel? Do you like picturesque locations and getting away from it all? Fun fact, there is a morgue on every cruise ship. After all, people die everywhere. Why wouldn't they die on a cruise ship in the Bahamas? Well, this new podcast has all that and murder. Murder. It's called Slaycation, and it's a darkly humorous look at murders and mysterious deaths that took place on vacation. Hosted by true crime fanatic, her comedy writer husband, and his TV producing partner, Slaycation brings a unique perspective to chilling, thrilling, and what-the-fuck stories of vacations gone horribly wrong. From the twisted tale of Harold and Tony Henthorne, whose romantic anniversary in the Rocky Mountains ended with one of them falling off a cliff, to Angelica and Vincent, two recently engaged lovebirds whose Hudson Valley kayaking adventure ended underwater, each episode of Slaycation will have you asking, accident or murder? But it's not just the stories that'll intrigue you. It's the discussion between a longtime married couple and business partners who happen to be Emmy-nominated TV producers. Each episode of Slaycation also includes humor, takeaway, and travel tips that will keep your next vacation from being your last. If you're ready to pack your body bags, Slaycation is available on all major podcast platforms. Search for Slaycation on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Hey, do you have trouble sleeping? Then maybe you should check out The Sleepy Podcast. It's a show where I read old books in the public domain to help you get to sleep. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of classic stories like A Tale of Two Cities, Pride and Prejudice, Winnie the Pooh, stories that are great for adults and kids alike. For years now, Sleepy has helped millions of people catch some much-needed Z's, start their next day off fresh, and discover old books that they didn't know they loved. So, whether you have a tough time snoozing or you just like a good bedtime story, fluff up the cool side of your pillow and tune into Sleepy. Unless you're driving, then please don't listen to Sleepy. Find Sleepy on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes each week. Sweet dreams. Procurement is a demon that walks among us, a predator that ruined families. The Lisk Long Island Serial Killer podcast was shocked when the news broke of Rex Hewerman's arrest. After more than a decade of searching, law enforcement officials had finally pieced together enough evidence to bring formal charges against Rex Hewerman. Initially charged with three murders, Hewerman is now officially charged with all four deaths in the Gilgo 4 case. I'm your host, Chris Moss, and the List Podcast will be releasing new episodes with interviews and fresh insight on the case as Rex Hewerman awaits trial in Long Island. 
While we are relieved by the arrest, the List Podcast team will be working hard to share new developments and perspectives as we get them. So please keep your eyes and ears out for new episodes, and if you haven't already, please listen to seasons one and two of Lisk, Long Island Serial Killer, wherever you listen to podcasts. The woman is attached to a black leather medical table by red nylon straps attached to every limb. She is blinded and muted with duct tape. On that floor with that metal bar that he used to strangle her with and that puddle of blood, it just looked like too much blood to come out of a tiny little eight-year-old lady. Being raped at gunpoint, like, uh, what, what else do you do? Like, you can't do anything. And it's two men against one woman. And I probably, you know, I weigh 98 pounds. So it's not like I can take them down myself. And I wasn't about to wrestle a gun out of their hands. I was just trying to survive. Hello, welcome to Human Monsters. Today we are joined by a guest who is going by the alias Cymbeline. She was a victim of horrific domestic violence, dealt by the hand of her ex-husband. It's not easy living with a human monster, and she has suffered serious consequences emotionally, physically, and legally. The abuse continues to haunt her to this day, but she is a stronger woman now and has found happiness just when it seemed it would elude her indefinitely. If you have been abused... I hope you find her story inspiring and compelling. I know I do. Okay, so thank you very much for uh, doing this show and uh, for the purposes of the program. Um, our guest today has chosen to identify by an alias, so I'm going to identify her as uh, Cymbeline. Welcome to the show, Cymbeline. Thank you. And uh, what we're here to discuss right now is uh, domestic violence. Uh, Cymbeline has experienced domestic violence as a victim, and uh, so I'm going to actually go back to the, the beginning uh, when you met the uh, assailant, the perpetrator. So uh, d- describe uh, the re- kind of the relationship you had with this person. So I was with him for seven years, and he was actually my first boyfriend. When I met him, he was um, you know, slightly older than me. Um, I later found out from her that they also had an abusive relationship, but at the time he just made me think, oh, she's abusive to me. And I kind of went along with that. Um, so when they broke up, we got together about like a month and a half after that. And I was in college at the time. And, um, I, it sounds so weird, but (laughs) I really wasn't initially interested in him at all. Mm-hmm. Um, how he kind of pulled me in was actually just one night we were out with friends and uh, he opened the trunk of his car and he had a gun in his trunk. And he was like, you know, if you don't go out with me, I'm going to kill myself. I almost killed myself today. And seeing you is the only reason I didn't do that. And so when you're a young girl and you've read Twilight and all these other books, in your head that's very romantic. Like, oh, I'm his reason to live. 
But of course, now in retrospect, it's like very clear that that was kind of the beginning of him trying to have control mm-hmm. and trying to gain the power in the relationship. Um, and it was pretty much immediately abusive. Um, you know, going back to like some of our first dates, um, it was more on the verbal side. Um, and then he raped me for the first time, I would say on like probably our three months of dating. And since it was my first boyfriend, I just thought that was like normal behavior. I didn't, I didn't for a second think, oh, this is abusive. I just had an association in my mind that, you know, guys can't control themselves. And, you know, he, the way that everything went down, he really kind of got in my head to make me think like that somehow I caused it. Um, So after that happened, it just turned into a quick downward spiral. And um, he started, you know, kicking, hitting, um, and it, it got pretty frustrating. So, (laughs) you know, that was our first year of dating. And like I said, at the time, I thought this was just totally normal. I thought this was romantic. I was like, Oh, he just likes me so much. Um, but now as I'm in my thirties, not my twenties, it's pretty clear. Like, what was going on? Um, did you grow up in, in an atmosphere where abuse went on? Was your father abusive with your mother at all? No. So I grew up in what most would consider a good home, although my mom was a widow. Um, I think part of the association was that I was molested at a pretty young age. And um, the person who did that actually ended up, he physically looked a lot like uh, my assailant from my major case that I went through. Uh, very similar appearance and behaviors. Um, so I, I think that's part of where I got the idea that that stuff was okay because I never got closure on that and didn't really tell anybody that it happened until I was pretty old. Yeah, I, I don't, I never experienced that kind of abuse, but I experienced physical abuse and what goes on is the abuser doesn't respect boundaries and they're violating them. And eventually, I don't know how often that happened to you, but you kind of live with that. You live with the fact that your boundaries are not respected, that they're being violated and you don't feel safe. So I guess, unfortunately, that kind of laid the groundwork for this kind of relationship that you had later on in life. Yes, absolutely. And like, I think a big, a big part of it was, you know, this guy that um, I was eight years old when I got molested. Um, and this guy, I only met him for like three days and then I never saw him again. And being so young, I had no idea who he was. And it sounds so strange, but I was just so hungry for that love. And I think it's part of it was growing up without a dad. Um, and this is the one guy I felt like, oh, we had this special experience. And that's kind of what he made me think. Um, And so I started to pair some very unhealthy behaviors in guys with um, affection, I guess you would say. So like I said, when my ex was being very abusive, I just thought, oh, this means he really, really likes me. 
And did you date at all before you met him? You said you said he was your first relationship. Did you go on any dates before that? Not really. Like I kind of tried to, but I was so it's I was so traumatized from what happened when I was a kid. I just like I kind of it sounds so weird, but I needed somebody who was abusive like that to really get me in a relationship. I just I was had a lot of barriers up. And so the idea that this guy can have forced me into a relationship was probably the only way it was going to happen with where I was at in my healing process. And, you know, I just, (laughs) at the time, it just seems like, oh, this must be meant to be because this is my first, my first love, I guess you would say. And, um, did he, was, did he just demonstrate any generally violent tendencies? Like you mentioned, he was violent in his relationship with the woman he was engaged to but he did did he get into fights with other males was he a constantly aggressive and confrontational person like even for instance in a, in a retail store would he tell off the cashier was he that, that kind of person absolutely yes very much so and in some ways that's that's kind of unique but also not um what was interesting about him is he could not respect anyone having authority over him. So <laughs> he was in multiple jobs. I don't want to say too much on um, what all of those were, but when we were dating, I remember that he was almost kicked out of the military several times. Um, and he always had a problem respecting authority. He was always, I would say at least once a week in a verbal borderline physical altercation with a guy. Um, Like I remember one time I went down to his apartment and he had smashed all of the dishes and furniture in his apartment. And I tried to ask him what happened. And I honestly, I still don't know, but one of the the two other guys in the apartment, I never saw them again. (laughs) So like, I have no idea what happened, but it was pretty clear from his explanation just didn't make sense. So I thought it was just, oh, all these people are out to get him and um, totally bought into his side of the story. But I really noticed it when we moved in together. Uh, it got much more toxic. Um, you know, hit, we lived with his family and every single day he was trying to fight somebody in his own family. And uh, that just astonished me at the time. I'm like somebody that just would avoid conflict at all costs. And was there ever any manipulation in the relationship? Because I know that a lot of abusive partners will do a thing where, you know, they take it too far at some point and then they decide to turn on the charm when it, when it means that they can use it to get them back. So would he, would he start to do that? Would he try to charm you into going back with him? Or if you realize maybe you went too far, do you, you do anything like that? Yes, that's actually the part of our relationship that I feel I have the most scars from. Because when I first left him, like, well, I I finally left and stayed away, I should say. Uh, A lot of things started to clear up in my mind. It was literally like I could see colors again. I felt like I'd been living under a fog. So the first time I remember him doing this was we were going on a run in the woods. And... I tripped and he got mad because I'm, you know, too fat for him. So he held my head down 
in like a frozen little puddle of ice. And um, like I was almost unconscious when he finally let me out of it. And uh, after that happened, he's like, I bet you're never going to trip when you're running again, are you? And see, I taught you a lesson. I ended up getting really severe pneumonia from that. And when I was at the hospital, when I talked to the doctor, he made me uh, put the phone on speakerphone and hide it so that he could hear what, what I was saying to them. And at the time, I was like, I don't know why he's doing this. He didn't do anything wrong. Like, he's not the reason I have pneumonia. But for him, he, I guess, knew what was going on. And that just continued through our whole relationship. He ended up, um, like, convincing me that so many things were normal. Uh, like, that all these other people were out to get him. All these other people were evil. Uh, I felt like I couldn't talk to anybody. He wouldn't let me get my driver's license. Um so I didn't have a driver's license until I was 26 years old. I finally got it right before I left him. <laughs> and he would not let me get my driver's license because he convinced me I was a bad driver. And he was like, I need to be the one driving you everywhere. You can get rides from people. You're not a good driver. He convinced me that I couldn't cook breakfast. So he did all these things to make me totally dependent on him. And that was part of it. The The worst part for me that, like, stands out very damaging was, uh, like, after one of, when he was really violent and he was, like, leave bruises on me from beating me up, he would always, like, hold my head right in front of the mirror and then make me repeat back to myself what he wanted me to believe. And so it would be things like, I deserved it. I started it. I'm not good at this marriage. I'm not good at as a girlfriend. Um, and then like recounting how he wanted me to tell what had just happened that I either like fell down the stairs. And at the time, I didn't even half the time remember doing that. Um, and then sometimes I would remember doing it because I was in such a mental fog from just all of the violence that I was living in. He would wake me up in the middle of the night and beat me up in my sleep. And then I would try to, like, call him out on it. And he'd be like, no, you were dreaming. But I knew I was awake. I had the bruises on me. Sometimes I would get out of bed and, like, go get a Band-Aid or wash off something. Like, I knew I was awake. I knew he was awake. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I had so many people try to help me. And I was just believing everything he was doing was normal or okay. And I really thought, this is what I deserve. I'm the problem. Right around the time you met him, did you have low self-esteem at all? Yes, yes. I definitely had very low self-esteem. I really believed that, like, I was this horrible person. Um, <laughs> I really thought, you know, that no one was ever going to like me. And I don't know where those ideas came from still, but that's, that's where my mind frame was. And I was like, this is my one shot at someone who actually likes me. Have you ever wondered what it's like to witness a murder? Forrest grabbed the knife and then just stabbed Johnny in one motion. Or how it feels to be shot. I was immediately hit by a barrage of bullets. Or how you would react if your spouse hired someone to kill you. And he was to put me in a grave 
with a bullet wound on my head. These are the stories you'll hear on the podcast called What Was That Like? True stories told by the actual person who went through it. You'll hear from a stalking victim. Came back upstairs and when I came back and turned the corner into my room, I saw him standing there. You'll hear from a man who was kidnapped and tortured. I would do anything, say anything, to simply get away. And you'll hear actual 911 calls. Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Real people in unreal situations. Search for What Was That Like on any podcast app or at whatwasthatlike.com. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Hey, my name's Otis Gray, host of The Daily Book Club, a daily podcast where I read wonderful old books one chapter at a time. Simple as that. Whether you want to get engaged and lost in a fascinating story that has stood the test of time, or just relax to a good book. Listen to The Daily Book Club to get wrapped up or unwind during your day. We'll read classic stories like Pride and Prejudice, The Enchanted April, The Wind in the Willows, beautiful stories all told from start to finish. And you can even do a real book club. Tune into The Daily Book Club Discord and discuss the readings with other book club listeners. However you want to listen, it's your choice. Subscribe to The Daily Book Club on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else. New episodes every single day. So sit back, relax, and get lost in the Daily Book Club. Uh, and so nobody else expressed interest you in you at all, or or you just maybe you just look past it. Yeah, like I had, uh, I had some interest from other people, but I was the one. I was such an unhealthy person that I attract, un, attracted unhealthy people back to me. Just like I was not healthy in my mental health, in my physical health. Um, like, I just didn't take care of myself at all. I didn't ever do anything trying to help myself. And uh, to the point, like, I was severely, I guess you would say, empathic. So if anyone else had a problem that would become my whole world. I would just be swept up in it. And it really took me a lot of therapy to kind of get away from that mentality. Uh, do you know anything about his background, his childhood that led him to behave the way he did? Do you know if he came from an atmosphere where domestic violence went on and was accepted? So I used to ask him all the time, like, what happened to you? Because he always seemed so damaged to me. Um, he had a lot of scars on his body, a lot, and I never could get him to tell me anything in retrospect, like just from witnessing his parents' marriage, it's pretty clear that their marriage was unhealthy. I don't know to what extent, you know, he was involved in that or anything, but, uh, his father, uh, was like 11 years older than his mother. Um, so like. In current times, uh, his father would have been considered like a, a statutory rapist, I guess you would say. Um, he was one of her, like, 
uh, coaches and um, they just had a really bad relationship. And so his dad actually died fairly recently and I saw his mom again uh, just by coincidence and she looked so much better. And I started to really think like, I wonder if their relationship was more toxic than I realized. Um, But yeah, his father was a bad influence for sure. Um, When we went through the whole thing and I finally left, his dad uh, really tried to make my life horrible. Really? What did he do? So some of this is kind of identifying, but uh, basically his dad was a leader in a community and um, it was really hard because I had lived in this community for several years and I basically got shunned. Um, and then when I went through the criminal trial, because there was a criminal trial, when I went through that, his dad just tried so hard to make my life miserable and like came up to my mom during the proceedings at the court during the trial and told my mom, like, shame on you. You need to get your daughter under control. Um, it was just, the whole thing was really, really hard. And his dad dying is hard, too, because I never really got closure on um, any of that. But, yeah, his dad really thought that husbands should beat their wives. Um, and I tried going to his dad for help, and that was a huge mistake, unfortunately. <laughs> so I, uh, I went to his parents saying, like, your son is beating me and how severe it was. And they both just were like, well, you can talk to him about it. And uh, so then his dad tried to talk to him, and I guess his their their conversation basically made my husband more violent um, because his dad was like, "You need to get this woman under control. She can't go around telling people that you're beating her." Uh, so, and what and where what state was this in that you lived where your town was? Uh, in Connecticut. Connecticut, really? Wow, that's that's not a place where people would normally assume that would happen. I guess they'd uh, assume it would happen in like the Deep South or something. What was that community? Was it very rural and and kind of backwards in a way? Oh yeah, oh yeah, <laughs> for sure, for sure. I, you know, when I got out of there and I realized how the rest of the world was living, I was just shocked. It was such a culture shock. Um, you know, my family used to jokingly call his family like that they were in a cult or something because we had like a small property of just a couple acres and uh, <laughs> there was like 15 people living on it. Um, and we had like a little farm thing and I was one of the only people there that had a job. Um, so it was just really an odd, odd Thing, and you would never think that's happening in Connecticut. But uh, Connecticut does have a lot of farming sort of areas, actually. Um, but, yeah, like, unfortunately, there is a lot of uh, traditional, I guess you would say, mindsets um, here. And people who are very resistant to change. Uh, and you can see that in various areas of politics. But there's a lot of outdated laws that um, I had to deal with. So, you know, you're, you're, so you're undergoing a great deal of physical assaults from this man. 
did uh, any of your friends or relatives kind of suspect something along the way that abuse may be happening? I would say they they did. So when we were first dating, uh, my mom, who is a wonderful person, was trying to pull me away and did everything in her power to get me out of the relationship. She never said it was abusive, but she said, you're not acting like yourself. I don't even recognize you. I, I feel like you're just under his control. And um, she actually, we went to see like a therapist mm-hmm. and um, my ex ended up throwing a chair at the therapist and storming out of the room. And wow. that was like the last, the last time we went to therapy together. So how long did that session last before he did that? <laughs> like 15 minutes, I think. <laughs> So what was it that set him off? Um, I believe it was the phrase, like, she needs to have her own opinions. Oh, I see. Yeah, the, he did not like that. He said the therapist is, like, trying to make us fight, break up. We should have the same opinions. Why would he say you need your own opinions? And, you know, he was having his his crocodile tears in the parking lot after the session. Um, and that, that's another thing. Like, I don't think I ever saw him really cry. He did a lot of fake crying and it's very confusing when you're dating somebody and they're fake crying and you're trying to figure out like, is this actually real? Is this fake? But that time, like I knew it was fake because there was no tears. There was no nothing. Like, and then he looked at me and his eyes are just void. It's just weird. Like, he would switch into this other zone. And uh, did he ever express, you know, empathy for other people? Did he ever express remorse about things he did to other people? Were those characteristics present in his character at all? No. No. I remember one time he got into a physical altercation with, um, a family member and we tried to have a family meeting to like clear the air and the other guy was like I'm sorry I don't know what I did that made you want to hit me and he just sat there and was like yeah you know what you did um, at the trial like when I was sharing the my testimony of what he did to me um, he actually was laughing during my testimony when I was bawling my eyes out. Um, that's just the type of person he is, unfortunately. He just, he doesn't feel like he can do anything wrong. He thinks he's chosen by God um, to be this special, I don't know what. And was he charged? Was he sentenced to anything? He was convicted. Um, yeah, so he did end up doing some time for everything. And did he? Did the judge uh, pass comment on his character at all? Because sometimes they do that. Sometimes they'll make some kind of statement about them. Um, so it kind of got weird. Um, so, like, unfortunately, like, the judge, I think, which I understand this from two perspectives, the judge was really focused on 
you know, Connecticut's really into restorative justice. So the judge was like saying that telling him like he could get better and he can improve himself. And, um, you know, this guy basically ruined my life. Yeah. (laughs) And it was just, it was really hard to hear. Um, she, like the sentencing was way lighter than I thought it should have been. Um, you know, unfortunately he did almost kill me and that was like the final straw. Um, there were actually three sort of final assaults, uh, before I left and he was only convicted for one of them. And that was really hard to deal with. Um, but at the same time, I was glad that he got something to stick because to be totally honest, he is very charming. And this is one of the issues in domestic violence. Um, you have a woman like me who is totally low self-esteem, been gaslighted all these years thinking that she is utterly worthless. My ex-husband, she's now my ex-husband, he is uh, very, very manipulative. Um, so he really tried to be charming with the jury, and I honestly think some of it did work. Um, the only person, like, there was always people who I felt like saw through him. Like, I feel like the DA, the district attorney, saw right through him. Um, he actually tried to talk to you know, the DA's office and make them try to convince them that I was lying. Uh, And like any lawyer would tell you that's a bad idea, but he went against his lawyers because he thinks he's that charming. Um, And it's really, really interesting because I think the only reason he got convicted is that he started to brag to the police about what he did to me and why I deserved it. And so they had that tape and the jury saw that. And that was a totally different person than the person in the courtroom. Just physically looks different, different way of talking. Like he really put on a show. Um, and his going to trial like, is also like he wanted to go to trial because he wanted to be important. It sounds like there's a mental illness at work. I mean, his behavior is clearly pathological. I mean, you haven't mentioned anything about him drinking heavily or, or taking drugs. So this is not this is not substance driven. This is this is just his his behavior, it's just his psyche, right? Yes, I definitely think so. Now, um, at the time, you know, he he seemed like he was okay, but he really just he wasn't. Uh, mentally well, I don't think. He puts things in his own perspective. Um, So, like, you can be in the same conversation with him, and he will walk away with nothing at all similar to what you said. Um, And just, like, his lack of emotion is the other thing. He does get mad, but he doesn't ever cry or show emotion like how most people do. I realize this now because I'm in a, a very healthy relationship. Um, but he didn't. When he would get mad, he would immediately just start breaking stuff. If he wanted to cry, he would break something. Uh, it was it was just really odd. And in a way, I kind of liked that because I was like 
the emotional one in the relationship. And that's really hard to accept. But there was a part of me that liked that he didn't have the same level of emotions as me. And uh, you mentioned that very early in the relationship, uh, you were sexually assaulted by him. Did that happen some more throughout the relationship? Yes. Yeah, that was the main form of abuse, like, during our marriage. When we were dating and engaged, it wasn't that much. Uh, but whenever we would get in an argument, that's, that's one of his go-tos. And people say, like, and he believes this as well, that you can't rape your spouse. And, can, like, yeah. you can. You can. Um, so, like, he would do things, like, to make sure I wasn't interested like beat me up um and as soon as I was like either unconscious or close to unconscious then he would uh sexually assault me um the worst like was when I was pregnant with our daughter that one that that like sexual abuse really really scared me and and to the point my OB was like trying to figure out what was going on and tried to make him leave the room and then he got mad because he would come with me to every doctor's appointment. He always had to be in the room with me, um, hearing everything they're saying. And I think, like, some of my doctors, they had suspicions, but I was not in a place where I could speak up for myself. It took a lot to get me to that place. I just could not. I felt so much guilt and shame, and I just really struggled to come forward with what was going on. So these rapes were so aggressive that uh, you incurred some damage to your reproductive organs? I, yeah, I did have some damage. Um, I am very fortunate with modern medicine that I'm doing pretty well now. Uh, but when I first left, I was totally just uh, demolished. And um, I went to the emergency room. They did a lot of exams and things. And... I eventually um, basically like just have so much scar tissue built up in different parts of my um, reproductive system now. Um, and uh, the other thing is just like lots of cysts from that as well. Um, so I do have to be careful, but I did go to like physical therapy for it. And I've taken a lot of strides on my own health and it has helped significantly. Did the, the OBGYN, uh, did they suspect that uh, rape was going on? Did they ask you about that? Yes, yes. No, they did. I mean, the one time they got him, they tried to get him to leave the room, and he was refusing. They tried to ask me about it. That obviously didn't go well. So after that, they didn't really bring it up again. Um, I think they had some suspicions, but I would immediately go, no, no, nothing's happening. That's just how my body is. And did part of, the, part of the treatment include surgery? I didn't have to have any surgery as of now. <laughs> awesome. uh, I, hopefully that will never be the case, but I was able to use a lot of uh, natural remedies. Like I said, I went to a physical therapist that deals specifically with this type of trauma. Because what happens is like when you go through this, your muscles are not able to relax. Um, they're just like, it's kind of like your PTSD for your body. And so you will like get um, like spasms and twitches that are extremely painful. 
Uh, and that, that's mainly what I was dealing with. And it took me, I would say this year is the first time I felt semi-normal um, after, like, you know, right before I left. It was just so violent. <laughs> Sorry to get into any graphic details. Like, did this, did it affect your day-to-day -day, uh, functioning? Like, did it affect your menstrual cycle, things like that? Um, you know, I honestly don't know because it's such a blur of when I first left. The main thing that I had issues with was like my, my bladder, um, I just a lot of problems with my bladder, um, and my spleen as well. Those were the two organs that seemed to really have taken the brunt of it. Um, as far as my cycle, I never really tracked it after I left. <laughs> I was just like in a daze. I had no idea what was going on. I never knew when it was coming or going. Um, I did take some medications as well that affected it. Um, because like, I do know that, um, or I strongly suspicious that he did cheat on me. So they put me on like some preventative medications too. Uh, but yeah, I, I honestly don't really know how it affected that part of my body. And you, did you say you had your daughter before all that happened? I, mean, I had my daughter, yeah, well, I had my daughter with, when we were, like, kind of in a good time is when I got pregnant, um, you know, and, of course, he was super happy to have a kid with me because that means we're linked forever, um, but, yeah, I, it was after I had her that things got really bad. Did you have any suspicions that um, he could end up abusing her one day? Like, was there anything about how he interacted her where we some red flags came up when I was with him. No, <laughs> as soon as I left. Yes. Yes, definitely. Some of the stuff that, um, so she still sees him and some of the stuff that I hear, I do always like keep a very attentive ear. I physically check her every time that I get her back. Um, because he's no longer supervised because he took all the classes he's required to take. Um, but I still check her every time she comes home and I'm very cautious just because if something is happening, I need to know right away. I need to do something because I really don't want the cycle to continue. Uh, does she ever come home? Even if there's no physical distress, does she ever seem emotionally distressed? Does she, or does she come home in a good mood or? She's always really happy to come home. I'll put it that way. Um, it's hard because she's still pretty young. Um, but she does tell me everything that happens when she's over there, I'm pretty sure. Uh, and we have a really good relationship. So I'm just hopeful that when the day comes, she is going to tell me. Has he broken any dishes or thrown any chairs while she was around? <laughs> that I don't know. I know that, um, so he is remarried. Um, so I know that there has been some verbal altercations, but I haven't heard anything beyond that from her. So let's hope that it's, you know, maybe those classes did actually have some type of impact on him being more mature. Imagine unlocking a version of yourself that's unstoppable, where mental barriers no longer hold you back. Listen to Mentally Stronger with me, Amy Morin, therapist and international bestselling author, here to guide you on a journey to reaching your greatest potential. 
Every Monday, I bring you into conversations with some of the most fascinating minds, experts, authors, entrepreneurs, athletes, and musicians. They don't just share stories. They reveal the mental strategies that propelled them to the top. But here's the real magic. At the end of each episode, I break down their wisdom into practical therapist-approved advice. In my solo episodes, I dive deep into the techniques that build mental strength. It's like having your own personal therapy session as you discover how to turn these insights into steps you can take right now. This podcast isn't just for those facing mental health challenges. It's for anyone who wants to push their limits, achieve peak performance, and truly thrive. Are you ready to unlock your full potential? Then it's time to become mentally stronger. Subscribe to Mentally Stronger with therapist Amy Morin, available wherever you love to listen to podcasts. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com slash audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com slash audio. That's carshield.com slash audio. Yeah, and I'm interested in knowing about his self-concept. Now, do you, do you think he has low self-esteem, or is it a matter of being so arrogant that he feels he has to lord over other people? Which one do you think it is? It's really hard to say. Uh, I would say it depends on the tape of the week. If you ask him verbally, he would say that, you know, he's the greatest of all time, and that he is just you know, God's gift to humanity, because that's really what he would always put out there. But I don't think someone who thinks they're that special would beat their spouse. Hard for me to accept. I don't know. Well, it it sounds like he had something to prove. What it it was, I have no idea. But I was thinking, you know, I wonder if it's low self-esteem. Like he has to prove to himself he's superior by making someone else feel inferior. I would definitely say that's true. Um, I also know, like, he has some sort of OCD tendencies. So, like, you know, one of the times he almost killed me was because I changed the password for Netflix or something like that. And when I went to tell him the new password, he just flipped out. Um And so it's like, I know part of it is control. Part of it is, like, an OCD thing. And what, what what was he like at his best? Um, at his best, he was very he was very attentive. Uh, he was, you know, my world, and we would just like sit there and look into each other's eyes and feel all those feelings that you think you're supposed to feel. And we would have fun. He was always spontaneous. Uh, very spontaneous with like doing fun stuff. Um, yeah, I would say like there were some good times like that where you like you would just feel very uh, captivated by what he's saying and how he's acting. Uh, unfortunately, like those good times weren't very many. Yeah, and so part of the part of the healing process for you, you mentioned therapy. So uh, what was the uh, what was a the therapist's uh, evaluation of him? What did they say about him and his 
his personality. My therapist said that he's really sick. And um, the main thing she tried to encourage me to do was to, to mentally let go of the stuff he would say about me. So, for example, like I said, he said I couldn't cook breakfast. So my therapist made me cook breakfast. She was like, every day this week, cook breakfast. And then see how bad you are actually at cooking breakfast. Um, and she just thinks, like, my therapist thought that he was a sociopath, I guess you would say. Uh, that was kind of her diagnosis. You know, she always was like, I kind of wish I could talk to him and just find out what's actually going on in his brain. But just, like, unfortunately, like, you know, I had the text messages still. I had the Facebook messages, the voicemails and everything. And I was holding on to all of those, um, partially for the trial, but also just for myself. And so she had, she would actually, like, I would play them for her, read them to her and be like, what do you think? Like, what did he mean by this? Or how should I have responded better? And that's what I was obsessed with, with when I left. I was obsessed with this idea I could have done something that would have made him behave. And my therapist had to spend a lot of her time convincing me that there was nothing I could do that would have made him behave. Um, and she had to convince me that he was mentally ill, that he was a sociopath, you know, that he had unhealthy tendencies. Um, and it took a lot of, a lot of months before I started to even consider that there was something wrong with him. We discussed earlier that you had low self-esteem for a very long time up to the relationship and throughout. How is it now? I mean, I know from my own experience that raising your level of self-esteem can be very difficult. It can take a long time. Has that improved? Like, how do you feel about yourself now? Yeah, so it sounds so, so elementary, but what I did was I wrote affirmations all over my house and every room I put like an affirmation poster. And so it's literally the reverse of the things he said to me. So like one of them said, I am valuable. I belong. Um, I am appreciated by my family, like stuff like that. I literally wrote them and put them in every room of the house. I took washable crayons and wrote on the side of the furniture, like similar phrases about myself. And then when I was in those rooms, I would just make myself read them out loud three times. <laughs> it sounds so simple, but it really, really helped me. Sure. It, it yeah. did wonders. I, it was like, because like my therapist was saying, every day you heard him say to you multiple times these things. And you already had those close out the team. So look how low you are now. Like, I literally thought I couldn't do anything. I would just sit in bed all day and stare at the wall. That was, like, how I was when I left. Yeah, um, yeah. Just, just so debilitated because I didn't have him there telling me what to do. I didn't know what to eat because he had always controlled what I eat. I didn't know how to dress because he always bought my clothes and picked up my outfits every day. And so it took a lot of rework. But now I'd say my self-esteem is, like, in the middle range. I still have bad days. Uh, but I have a successful job. I have a lot of healthy relationships. I have my own house. Um, so for me, it's like I've shown myself a lot of the things he said I couldn't do, I can. And it kind of motivated me in a way just to prove him wrong. And are you, are you in another relationship now? 
So I am remarried now because just several years ago that I got out of this uh, other one. Um, and he's awesome. Uh, he's actually also like an anti-domestic violence activist. And uh, he's a great dad to my daughter and just like such a sweet guy. He actually, I think, has more emotions than me, (laughs) which I really like. And, um, you know, he doesn't try to charm anybody. He's just 100% himself. And that's like the main thing that drew me to him. Yeah, that is great. And uh, I don't know if this question comes across as strange, but was it hard for you to... um, to give yourself permission to be with someone like this because it was such a, 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 a huge change of pace to be with the man like that. So was that, was it kind of jarring at first that you didn't see it coming or? Yeah, in some ways, yes. Um, so by the time I started dating him, I had been away from my, we'd been separated for three years, me and my ex. Um, so, I was kind of ready to like start looking. I honestly didn't want anything serious. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I just wanted somebody to have fun with. Uh, But the very first time I talked to him, I was just like, he just had something about him that really warmed my heart. Um, It was really hard in the beginning. I had a lot of panic attacks, not because of anything he did. But, like, it was things like he would close the door, and the door would close too hard, and I would start shaking. (laughs) Or uh, he would go to hug me, um, and he would just hug me the wrong way, and I would have to leave the house. (laughs) Like, I don't know how he had so much patience, but he really, really cares about me. And I think just because, like, he already had a knowledge of how damaging domestic violence is, like... He thought I was worth putting in the time, and uh, that really, like, kind of opened my heart to him, and I'm really grateful that I met somebody like that. I think that when I first left, my biggest fear was no one is ever going to love me. I'm never going to be married again. I'm going to be alone the rest of my life, because that's what my ex kept telling me, and so uh, meeting somebody that actually cares about me was such a healing experience in a lot of ways, honestly. So if he was, if he's involved with um, activism for domestic violence victims, had you been a member of some kind of uh, support group for women who have had that experience? And if so, was that a help to you? Um, I did go to a support group. Um, I did find it really helpful. It opened my eyes a lot, a lot, because it sounds so strange, but hearing those other women's stories, do you realize how sick these guys are? Um, when it's just your story, you're thinking, oh, I deserve it. But when you hear someone else say it, you're like, oh, that's horrible. How could he do that to you? You're the mother of his kids. And then you take a look in the mirror and you're like, oh, wait, that's almost identically what happened to me. And, uh, yeah, it really opens your eyes to hear it from someone else's mouth. The only thing that was kind of cool about the group was, like, um, You know, that's actually where, like, the affirmation thing came up a lot. They would talk a lot about affirming ourselves. Um, But the group was was really, I think, one of the key things for me. At the time, I thought it was a waste of time. Pretty much the court required me to go. And I was like, uh, I don't need to go to this. You know, I was married and 
yeah. My husband only has like six charges. It's not that bad. <laughs> um, and then I went in there. I was like, oh, six charges is actually pretty bad in the state of Connecticut. So like they have like a general DV charge. He didn't even get that charge. They just went straight for the felonies with him. Um, so it's like it did open my eyes to how serious it was. And then also the other thing that was amazing about this group was seeing the women who had gone back and this was the time they stayed away. And, uh, you know, that really encouraged me to see how like they were happier now that they've been away for a couple of months. Cause I started going right after I left and, um, seeing how they were doing better than I was, was really encouraging. Um, I actually left my ex 11 times before it finally stuck. And I think like that program is probably one of the reasons I didn't go back because he was really trying to get back with me, basically like stalking me after I left. Yeah. And I find that uh, Hollywood tends to portray domestic violence surprisingly in, in a way that sugarcoats it. Like they always show like, well, you know, it's a lot of shouting and he hits her now and then, but it actually tends to go a lot further than that. Like what you've experienced and another sad element as well as that in some cases, the children are manipulated by the abuser into thinking that it's the mother who's at fault. Um, so I guess your daughter would have been too young for that, but um, was that something you heard about at the group as well? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's kind of disgusting because like some of these dads would do such horrible things and then they would end up with custody of the kids. And that was really, really heartbreaking to see. Um, and the reason that happens is, like, because the guy, you know, he does have a DV conviction, but then they'll, like, try to find dirt on the mom. Or they'll say, I mean, the court will tell the mom, like, you put your child in danger by staying in that home. And they try to, like, the attorneys try to turn that into the fact that, you know, the dad is uh, better than you because you're the one putting your kid in danger knowingly he never hit you in front of the child or something like that. Like it's disgusting, but um, I'm still worried about that just because she's still in contact and um, he is manipulative, just his personality. I still have to deal with it um, like twice a month and I do see him manipulating her and that's hard to accept. And I, uh, I try to talk to her about it in a way that doesn't make him the bad guy. She has no idea what he did. Um, even though she was in the room sometimes when some of this stuff happened, um, she just doesn't remember it. And so, yeah, I've been really worried. I still worry about that. That's like something I'm going to have to deal with the rest of her life. And uh, during the trial for, just to go back for a moment, uh, what kind of things did his attorney say to try to discredit you? Oh my goodness, everything, everything. Looking back now, it was ridiculous, but at the time, I was so upset by it. So one of the things she kept bringing up was I was working like a 15-hour work day. And she kept bringing that up over and over and over. And then like in one of her closing arguments, she was saying how any woman who would work that much didn't really care about her child. <laughs> and I was working that much because... He had been fired, like, so many times from different jobs. He had no income. I was the only income 
So I had to work a lot, our whole relationship. Um, I remember one of the other things was they brought a receipt. So they had gone, so the way the protective order went down, uh, they actually, his attorney got all of my possessions and went through everything I owned. Um, and then they refused to give me my stuff until I got a court order to get my things, um, which was about three months. I had literally nothing. Uh, and so... <laughs> Uh, she had gone through all my stuff. She did something where she pulled out like a receipt and the receipt had one bottle of wine on it and she put it into evidence. And then she showed me the receipt and was like, you bought one bottle of wine in August of last year. And at the time, I honestly hardly drank. <laughs> and I bought one bottle of wine for like half a year and I was devastated on the stand. I started shaking because I thought I was in trouble, um, but it was one bottle of wine. It was stuff like that. Um, you know, they tried to go through everything, everything. Like, they brought in some of my clothes to, like, show how, like, I dressed like I was promiscuous. Uh, they brought in, like, some of my pajamas to show, like, try to show, like, oh, she was asking him to rape her. Um, so it's, there was a lot of stuff like that, just insane in retrospect but at the time I was totally shaken up by that I was so embarrassed I was just sitting up there in front of a room of strangers having you know these very personal things pulled out in front of everybody and I was on the stand for six hours um and he was on the stand for 20 minutes Miles you were on as you were as much on trial as he was that's, that's how they do it. That's how they yeah. do, you know, it was a rape trial and that's how they do rape trials. They really put the victim on the stand and all the guy has to do is go up there and just be nice for 20 minutes and they have so much more time. And that was part of her closing argument too. Uh, you know, we have a very innocent perpetrator because he was only on the stand for 20 minutes. She was on the stand for six hours because there's so much dirt to discuss on her. Um, we had plenty of dirt on him, but it was all deemed inadmissible, or a lot of it was. Uh, unfortunately, we didn't have that police tape of him admitting what he did. <laughs> but aside from that, it's just like, you know, uh, it was just such a horrible experience to go through. Did you ever um, bring your medical records into it, like as, as proof that uh, he raped you? Yeah, so I tried to bring those in, and they wouldn't um, put them into the trial. Hmm. And um, it's actually interesting because I I ended up hiring my own attorney as a victim just because um, my ex was coming after me so much, and I couldn't take it. And so he was pretty much there working with my victim advocate, who was a wonderful victim advocate, but she just had a lot on her plate. Um, so my ex, like I said, was in the military. And I don't want to sound like a conspiracy theorist. But the military blocked the court from getting my medical records. Really? Well, you know, there has been a lot, yeah. of, there has been a lot of tolerance in military culture of sexual assault that's been documented. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And um, he was... Unfortunately, he was pretty high ranked in the military, to be honest. Um, 
And so because of his rank and who he knew, that's part of why his sentencing was so light. He had a four-star general write a letter to the judge asking for a light sentence that he could serve his country. Um, he had the military calling me. I had to go in and meet with them. And, uh, yeah, that's basically like I never should have met with them because that's what happened with my medical records. And they put a hold on them basically until the trial was over. Wow, that's very good. Um, and the copy that I was able to get was one page. When I was like, I had all those tests done, they didn't even include results for any of that. They just sent like a cover letter of the results. And my mom and I actually put in a complaint with the hospital saying like that they mishandled the whole thing and what, what we were upset about. But yeah, it was it was pretty disturbing to see um, the way they handle it in the military is like, you know, uh, fortunately now he was dishonorably discharged because of all of this. But at the time, your immediate commander is the one who decides if the case against you is going to move forward. And his commander was his best friend, so nothing happened for a while. And it was scary to me having a protective order and my ex is still allowed to fire a gun on base. Yeah, it's just, it's a scary thing. So uh, how, how does the, how does the handover go now with your, your daughter? How does, does he come to your home to get her or how does it work now? No, I am in the confidential address program because he kept showing up at my other houses. Um, so he will never have my address. And it's all done through a third party, which honestly, it's working pretty well right now. We will see. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, but we just keep it like I, I haven't, I don't have contact with him or as little as possible. And I have to have some, but as little as possible. And uh, there's an interesting subplot to this story as well. Um, you mentioned that uh, your daughter at the age of three saved your life. So I was interested in knowing uh, what happened there. So right before I left him, um, I would say my last night there, I, I told him I was going to the police. And I said, tomorrow I'm going to the cops. I think I should tell it to you first. If you just apologize now, I'll do a civil divorce. I will not go to the police. I just want you to admit that you're hurting me and it has to stop. You can't hurt people. And... He was so calm about it, had no emotions about it or anything. So I thought, oh, we're good. Like, maybe I actually made peace with him and I don't have to go to the cops. I just got upset that day because he kept hitting me. And then as soon as he would hit me, he'd go, I didn't hit you. I was like, yes, you did. I felt it. I saw you. Um, so I just had had it. So we had been in this fight, but I thought we were okay. I fell asleep on the sofa because uh, I was just staying away from him as much as possible. I wake up and um, he is on top of me with his hand uh, over my face and his whole body weight pressing down on me. And his other hand is around my chest, just squeezing me. Um, and so I started to scream. I was absolutely terrified. And I thought for sure that was it. He started, uh, you know, squeezing my face tighter. And then he pulled out his hand and just started uh, hitting me in the chest over and over with it. And uh, I couldn't do anything. 
he's twice, almost twice my height. Like I'm very short. He's over six foot. I couldn't do anything. I was just screaming um, hysterically. And my daughter actually ran in the room at three years old and pulled him off of me. Wow. And that is why, that's when I went to the cock. I was like, and, you know, I was so, when she ran in the room and pulled him off of me, and then just seeing, like, that innocent face, like, she pulled on him, pulled on him, he wouldn't stop, so she screamed at him and started hitting him until he got off of me. And then he stopped and he went and sat somewhere else. She crawled up into my, like, lap. I was, like, trying to sit up. She crawled up into my lap and, like, called me and asked me if I was okay. And she's like, are you okay? Are you okay? And then she was like, bad daddy. And that was the last straw. That's why I left. I realized, like, if I stay, she's just going to keep getting more involved. Uh, This is the third time in a week he almost killed me. I need to get out. Uh, And I laugh because if I don't laugh, I'm going to cry. Um, it, it was just like the most sobering experience, just seeing that tiny face looking at you, asking you if you're okay, mm. when she was like so young, I'm just seeing like, okay, this, this is not all right. Because until that point, he would always convince me he hadn't done it or that what he had done was Okay. And so seeing her being upset and seeing her knowing it was a problem, even though she's three, it's like, I felt felt so clear, so much clarity at that moment. I was like, okay, this is it. And I went to the police the next day. Um, I didn't originally want to go to the cops, but I was a teacher at the time. And my job essentially told me I had to go. Uh, They couldn't take any more. It's just like not healthy for someone who works with students to be in that environment. And uh, how old is your daughter now? She's seven years old now. Does she remember that incident? I don't think so. You know, I pray to God she doesn't. (laughs) Uh, But I, when I first left, yeah, she never wanted to see him again. Um, It it took a lot of, again, she also went to a lot of therapy. She had, um, she was self-mutilating as a three-year-old, oh which is God. something I never knew was possible. Um, and so, like, she, because of that, uh, her school two-on-one'd her, and I had to take her to therapy once a week for, like, two years. Um, and I was very, very lucky to have a great therapist for her that somehow got her to stop and also really helped her. Um but when she first got reunified with him, she didn't ever want to see him. And she was just crying and shaking. She didn't want to go in the room. Um, and then, like, a couple of weeks later, it was no big deal. It was just part of routine. Like, she would go in the supervised room and see him. Um, which, in some senses, is very hard. On the other sense, like, I think as long as it's safe, she should probably know him. But... It, it's really like a hard walk, line to walk. Yeah. So she was like, she was cutting. Is that what she was doing? She actually pulled out her hair. Oh. Yeah. She pulled her hair out and she scratched off a lot of her skin. Like pretty severe 
um, she had big patches of hair she had pulled out and she had scratched, um, like her hands were totally raw. Her arms were raw from scratching them so much. And uh, she wouldn't eat. She wouldn't sleep. Like it was just, it was like my nightmare when I was already trying to heal myself, dealing with, you know, a daughter also having PTSD. And then we would like trigger each other. We both would be upset. It was just, it was a really tough time, really hard. So how has PTSD been, uh, how has it manifested for you? You mentioned sometimes there are triggers in your new relationship, but have you also had like, you know, you mentioned that your ex would like wake you up by beating you. So do you, you find it difficult to sleep now and to get night terrors? So when I first left, I had really bad night terrors and I actually would wake up with bruises from hitting myself. Uh, which I guess is very common for people who have been severely abused. I didn't sleep much at all. Um, I would be, I would sometimes just like go sit in front of my locked door to make sure he couldn't get in. Um, you know, looking back now, it's not rational behavior, but at the time that's how I coped. Um, and I've had to accept that for now, this has been like a solid four years. Uh, I'm doing pretty good. I really am. I still have things that really trigger me. So pretty much any time he sends me, we have to use a court-mandated communication service. Anytime he sends me a message, I immediately start to shake. Um, there are certain things, like, I can't really drive in the town. And I, like, I avoid the town that all this stuff happened in, like, I drive around it, even if it's a 20 minutes extra, I really try to stay away from that town. Um, if I see someone driving his type of car behind me, I still turn around and do a loop to make sure I'm not being followed. Uh, there's a lot of little things like that. And some of my triggers, I honestly didn't know what they were for a long time. So I kept a trigger journal and started writing down like things that happened right before I got um, upset and just kept it. And then I started trying to eliminate those things that would trigger me. Like the, the working out thing was really, really hard um, because I needed it to stress relief and to be healthy. But I had such a deep like trauma connected to working out. And uh, it was really hard for me like to work out. I, that's why I did the physical therapy. I ended up getting a trainer, um, and now I'm like back to working out five days a week. And it really like helps me with my PTSD to keep it in check. Cause I've just, I know for myself, like if I work out, it helps with the stress of it. And it also helps me to go to sleep. Uh, so that's what I've noticed with uh, that. Now I've made a lot of good progress, but it's not exactly where it needs to be. Still, I want to be like a hundred percent trigger free. I don't know if I'll ever get there. <laughs> but I've really put in a lot of work towards it. Um, did the rape, does that make it difficult to, to be intimate? Sometimes it does. Um, sometimes it's kind of the opposite because I feel like the need to reclaim that for myself. Mm -hmm. uh, but sometimes it is really, it, it definitely has been a challenge. Um, yeah, it definitely has been a challenge. I'm lucky, like I said, my husband's very, like, understanding and patient, and 
very kind about it. I always feel bad if it does happen. Uh, but yeah, there's certain things that like I can't do, don't want to do, um, just because it's too hard. Um, so like it, it has been, I would say that's one of the areas that I have to put conscious thought into not being affected. Well, I have to say, you know, this is really one of the, the worst domestic violence cases I've ever heard about, but you know, you survived it and, uh, it sounds like you're doing well for the most part. There's setbacks along the way, but I think it's uh, very brave of you to share your story. Well, thank you. And I really hope that, like I said, somebody else hearing this knows things can get better because my situation was so bleak. I thought my life was always going to be awful. And that part of it made it so hard. Yeah, I can imagine. Well, I mean, and they say that these guys, these abusers, they're very good at uh, knowing who the victims are going to be. They can, it's almost as if they can smell it on them. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I hope he's learned and is less abusive. Uh, but I for sure look, you know, I had to change myself not to attract somebody like that again too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you deserve much better. That's for sure. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Well, I thank you so much for doing our show. I'm sure your example will be inspiring to other women who have had this experience. Thank you. Great. Thank you so much for having me. Take Bye. care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Human Monsters. Bye for now.